Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message, Taking a Closer Look, the first in a series entitled To Know Him by Pastor John. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. When I came home from the hospital after the stroke, Kay and I decided that it would be a good idea. I was having some difficulty taking a shower. We decided to buy a shower chair, which you can possibly imagine is a specialized chair that that allows you to sit down because at that time I was not able to stand up for long periods of time. I noticed that when I, when I went into the shower, I was having great difficulty. I was afraid of the chair. I was obsessed by the weakness of the chair. I would hang on to the water faucet. I would hang on to the wall. I would not put my full weight on the chair. I didn't trust it. It happened about five or six times in a row. Finally, I, just, I said, this, something, this, is, this is screwy. I turned the chair over, and there were three loose bolts on the bottom of that chair. The chair was headed for trouble. It was a prompting. It was a miracle. Within a few hours, that's that's the good side of the miracle. Within two or three hours, my mind began to slip trying to make a trying to conceive how this must be some kind of coincidence. Maybe maybe I saw them putting the chair together and I noticed that they weren't securing it. Maybe this, maybe that, maybe something else. No. A miracle is a miracle. That is the... That is the fifth or sixth miracle that I've experienced. No, that's not accurate. That is the fifth or sixth miracle that I have experienced to my knowledge, not counting all the ones that slipped by that I didn't notice. God is good all the time. The devil comes to deceive, steal, and kill. Amen. 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 Well, welcome, everybody. We're so happy to have you guys here. And just want to introduce our Pastor John. He's going to start a new series, and we're really excited about it. So let's welcome him up. Good morning, everyone. Jerry, I love that story. And you're about to find out why. I love it. Set up from the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you what. The name of the sermon today is Taking a Closer Look. And we're dealing with uh, the subject matter of all of those little things that don't seem right, but we tend to overlook or don't want to actually take a look. So anyways, I got to get Theo out of the box. So yeah, Theo is on the job today. There we go. I don't want to have to walk over there three, four, five, six, eight times, so... Uh, Jesus, we just kind of recapture the moment where we were caught up in the throne room. Lord, where our eyes were seeing the King. Lord, I thank you that you've written your word on our hearts 
And I thank you, Lord, that you've written your word on my heart. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to move in this room. We yield our will and our understanding to you. I'm asking, Lord, that you take us deeper and further than we have in the past. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you help us to see the glory of King Jesus. Lord, I love the way in which you speak. I love the way in which you prepare our hearts. And I really love, Lord, when you show up and you begin to take over. I'm just asking, Lord, that you do that again today for your glory. Let your kingdom come, Lord, and your will be done right here, the same as it is in heaven. Amen. It's funny, I've been on these, these cycles, you know, there, there's a, a way in which I live. People ask me all the time, you know, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you have three businesses and, and uh, pastor a church? And my, my answer is that I, I actually have to live day by day hearing the voice of God and actually just following what he's doing. Uh, because if I tried to collectively control all of that, I would absolutely lose my mind. And um, uh, because fear and anxiety and all that can really set in. And so the Lord invited me into this lifestyle of just pursuing his, his presence and pursuing his kingdom and actually seeking first the kingdom of God and watching that manifest in my life. And you guys know that that's kind of my life verse. And uh, almost every message that I preach, you're going to get it kind of circle back around to that reality that, that we really have been brought into the kingdom of God for such a time as this. We really have been brought into a relationship with Christ so that we can actually see the things of heaven come to earth in our day and in our age as he manifests himself through us. So anyways, all that being said, um, you know, we're, we're at a place on the calendar where I just with the Holy Spirit process the, the speaking schedule and how that, how that goes. Before this last eight weeks, I've only spoke once in the last eight weeks. Before that, I spoke eight out of ten weeks. <laughs> so I'm feeling a little rusty, so you all bear with me. But as I was uh, making out the, the uh, schedule again, you know, there's just interesting ways in which the Lord kind of helps me do that. And I noticed, wow, I'm speaking four weeks in a row. And uh, glory. glory to God. Well, I said, wow, Lord, that sounds like a series. What are we doing? And just that quick, just that quick, I mean, I think I got up to look in the mirror or something, and just that quick he spoke to me and he said, to know him. Y'all know how God speaks to you, right? He can say just a phrase, and it, it's just pregnant with meaning to you because he's up to something in your life. But when he said to know him, it's like this invitation for us to actually take a closer look and to really challenge our foundations and our basis of what we call our belief system. And specifically, you guys know that we've been over this and over this, but how we define salvation and eternal assurance and that being based on you're saved by grace through faith. So if that is true and the word is true, but what lens can we look at that through that reconciles a broader scope of Scripture because our understanding of what that means needs to be challenged when we run headlong into uh, passages of Scripture uh, like Philippians 3, where Paul talks about everything in my life. We're going to look at Philippians 3, but everything in my life I complete as I consider a complete loss 
utter destruction, complete waste of my time, that I may gain Christ. So if it's a warm fuzzy in our heart, or if it's just a matter of saying, repeating words with our mouth, it's very hard to reconcile that type of thinking about the basis of our relationship with God in Paul in the words that he says in Philippians 3. So, Jerry, thank you for your testimony. That was so a setup from the Holy Spirit because I think that we need to actually take a closer look and I think that what I'm going to give you the end right now that the Holy Spirit is up to is that there are places in our lives that we are protecting, that we're almost in denial and going, I don't see that and I don't hear that. And the Lord is actually inviting us into a place where we get healed of the fear of the unknown. And right now, in the name of Jesus, we just take authority over the spirit of fear and we reject it right now. But how many of you know that most things in life just need a closer look? Especially when we feel like something's not just right, like the shower chair. And we're led to just take a look. The difference between having a traumatic accident that puts us backwards and actually walking in safety and experiencing the miracles of God is our participation to actually take a look. Y'all ever, has anybody ever experienced this? Like you've got something, uh, your furnace is not working. We had one season where we froze all winter because I was afraid that it was going to cost me $10,000. And I just assumed the worst case scenario. Uh, the following year, it's like the Holy Spirit said, what's the matter with you, son? Call the AC guy. And he comes out for a hundred bucks. He knocks the rust off the burner and bam, there we had heat. And I thought, oh my gosh, we went a whole winter freezing uh, breathing the carbon monoxide from the fireplace. We'd, we'd warm up in that room, you know, but the rest of the house is freezing just because I was afraid to take a look. I have people, we own uh, a car business and a boat business, and I'm telling you, it's the phone rings off the hook with people saying, well, I got this little thing and I got that little thing, and how much are you going to charge to do that? Because they're feeling, the, they're testing the waters without actually trusting us. And I tell all my employees, it's always the same answer. Bring it by so we can look at it. And it's like they're afraid. It's like how many of you have had health issues? You know, I had this, y'all remember the Achilles thing that I had going on? You know, we can struggle with something or wonder if, uh, you know, we've got something going on physically and think the worst case scenario, we're afraid to actually go find out because we're afraid of the diagnosis that we might get from the doctor. And then when we finally go, it's like nothing. You know, because it's the spirit of fear that lies to us and says you're dying. You've got terminal cancer or something like that. And I think that there are whole uh, industries and actually groups of uh, people in business that take advantage of that. They know that's what's going on. And they're like, not to out my foot doctor, but man, it was like, this foot will never work. You see that? that that's, we need to cut that thing up and break the bones and reset it because that's, that's never going to work. And I was thinking, you know, it's been working for 50 years. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why it wouldn't work. And we went through all this stuff to get my Achilles healed. And then I started actually taking a closer look for myself on the Internet. 
and found, uh, you know, some of these doctors that will talk and give tutorials on the internet. It's basically your calf muscle is so tight that it's pulling up on your Achilles tendon and causing it to tear. So now when my Achilles starts flaring up, I've learned to just massage it out. Well, they're not going to tell you that. They can make any money on saying, hey, you know, if you just massage it out, $40 massage gun. I think the <laughs> one of the Achilles, I mean, and I do know that God blew up a bone spur that I had. That was a testimony I had. But one of them, I spent two grand on a shot. She gave me some crazy Wharton jelly shot. All right. Play the video. <laughs> Oh, look at this. <laughs> what are you wiping the windows? <laughs> yeah. Oh, look at that. That's nice and shiny. Well, it's a 78. Yeah, it's looking good. It looks really good. Yeah, it's got original paint, too. And yeah. People that owned this thing before me must have put the thing away in its Long Island, New York garage every day of its life. Oh, go figure. Look at this. Oh, got look it. at this. <laughs> you know, when I see a car like this, first thing I do is I say, would you look at this? You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Oh, would you look at that? Yeah, well. Would you look at that? Yeah, there's a few more blemishes on the car. The oh car, my gosh, just car, look at the it. The car is not perfect. Just look at it. <laughs> just look at it. Yeah, well. What the heck is that? <laughs> I, you got to look at it this way, okay? You just got to look at it. That's all you can do anymore. Thank you for humoring me. Oh, I just had to. Holy Spirit, please come back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. So in the video, you see this, it, it looks to me like uh, somebody's trying to sell a 1978 Olds Cutlass or whatever that thing is. And, uh, you know, I just wonder though, uh, in comparison to our belief system, when we're, are we like the guy trying to sell that 78 that actually has some cracks in the way in which we see things and the world's not buying it. That's what I want to do. I want to take a closer look. <clears throat> In my notes, I got, might our belief system have a rattle under the hood? Does it look to the world like an old car that we're in love with and trying to convince the world of its value? So, reconciling our belief system with a narrative that is actually in Scripture, that the story that God is actually telling and not necessarily what we've built our belief system on. So let's look at Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is one of those rattles under the hood. When we build our assumptions of salvation and of eternal life and of being saved 
uh, by grace through faith and the way in which we operate based on Paul's writings in Romans. And then we get to Philippians and Paul sounds like he's throwing all that out the window. Now, is it because Paul was just having a bad day? I think he was having a bad day, but I don't think that has anything to do with it. How do we actually reconcile this truth of the gospel with being saved by grace through faith? And I want to answer that question. And so those of you that have done a lot of uh, theological studies probably know that the word for faith is pistis. And that is the Greek word, and it has different variations of uh, pistio is actually giving pistis. Um, that's used in different places, but um, it's actually not faith. I want to define what faith is in this uh, in this scenario. Pistis is actually reliability. It's confidence, assurance, fidelity, faithfulness, commitment, and pledged loyalty. So I want to zoom in on this knowing him and this series is going to be about knowing Jesus better because if Paul defines righteousness by faith, the righteousness of God by faith in Christ, that that's what it is, that Christ is the point of our faith, having faith in him, not just faith for faith's sake. And he defines it as this, knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. There's that rattle under the hood being conformed to his death, now it's clanking like a thrown rod. And if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Has this verse ever bothered anybody? I mean, that's the one that we're, we're afraid to pull the band-aid off and go, how do I reconcile that with my belief system? This one's hard to swallow because apparently it looks different than our popular versions of what saving faith is. So I want to talk about what faith is not. Faith is not the opposite of evidence assessment. This is like Mormons. You ever have Mormons come to the door and they ding dong the door and then you ask them, hey, y'all are ladies, how do you get saved? And they start, I don't want to tell that story. Well, a man has to pray us in. We have to wear holy underwear. How about Joseph Smith and the goggles that he had that he uh, translated ancient Egyptian tablets that were found in New Jersey. How about that? And they say, look, why don't we pray? Let's kumbaya and we'll allow God to warm our hearts and help us identify with faith. We just have to believe by faith. That's not faith. That's called fideism. Fideism. It's the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It's like the elephant in the room. You know that there's holes on it. You can actually Google some of that stuff uh, about Joseph Smith's testimony of the ancient hieroglyphic uh, Egyptian tablets that were totally not true. And that's just commonly found information. And so what I'm saying is that in our, in our uh, belief system, if our belief system doesn't hold water, we have spent so much time arguing about things that don't actually matter. 
that aren't a part of the narrative arch of what God is doing in the world through Scripture. And we get in these corners where we're just denying the evidence and asking people to make a flying leap to trust blindly in this message that we're telling. And I'm challenging that we're telling the message the wrong way. This happened historically in the church during the Enlightenment period. Prior to the Enlightenment period, the church had a lot of authority. As a matter of fact, all of the gods of the nations had a widespread understanding that if you did something wrong, then uh, tornadoes, um, lightning bolts, all these kind of things were an effect of having upset the gods or our God for that matter. And as time rolled around and humanity began to come out of the dark ages and began to actually discover things about the human spirit through the Renaissance period first, through art and music and all these things, and into the Enlightenment period, which is where man kind of discovered science and industry. And when that happened, the church's knee-jerk reaction was to say, well, you're just going to hell and start to get in our trench and throw grenades over. The Bible says so. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Y'all ever heard that? But honestly, it's nothing different than Phineas, and we might as well be Mormons. That was Billy Graham? Well, there's a sense in which that is true. There are things, truths about the Bible that folks will not understand that we believe that are probably too complex to sit down and explain to people. But I'm telling you that there's a way in which we live that our true, genuine faith is actually contagious and actually effective in the world, and it's not fideism. Y'all understand what I'm saying? We're not just getting on the elephant in the room and making it jump over the chasm there. It's not a warm sensation, a warm fuzzy in our heart. That's not faith. It's not something that one simply must privately and personally affirm regardless of whatever contrary evidence exists. That's why some of the arguments about exactly how old the earth is and all that doesn't matter. We're, you're missing the point. You know, literal Adam and Eve, I believe, yes, there's a literal Adam and Eve. I believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, but that's just not an argument we need to have with scientists that say it's billions and billions of light years or whatever. It, it, we don't need, that's not part of the story that really matters that much. Alan, you might feel differently that it matters, but I, I'm out of my wheelhouse when I try to do, seriously, when, when I try to do apologetics. I have never won anybody to Christ through apologetics. They have their place. I love apologetics. I love watching people do it, but that's not my deal. But I don't need to just disregard and demonize other people because they're smart, because they've discovered things through science. A response that does not attempt to deal seriously with all the available data, including the complexities of the Bible itself. That's fideism. The faith that God actually requires of us has nothing to do with ignoring revel relevant evidence that is easily available when adjudicating truth claims. So there is a faith that God requires of us. 
that is the faith that saves us. And it has nothing to do with ignoring facts <laughs> and relevant evidence. Easily available when adjudicating truth claims. It's because of this abusive use of faith and, you know, faith and belief that so many past, present, uh, and future are quick to dismiss Christianity and religion altogether. Seeing it as purely faith-based while taking faith to mean the opposite of evidence-based truth. So saving faith has got to be something different than that. That is not what God requires of us is just to, nope, nope, nope. Nope, nope, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And we've done that. The church has done that forever, to sit in our trench and lob grenades back and forth with the scientific community. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's the way to go. I think the church should have adjusted and said, wow, God is the one that, you know, the scientific things that you're discovering, let's help them to see rather than throw our walls up. It requires us to actually look at it, take a deeper look. To find out that God is in the science. God is beyond. He transcends the science. We don't need to demonize others. All right. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not like uh, Indiana Jones taking a step off a ledge into a dark chasm, obediently following arcane instructions. Even when no obvious path to safety can be achieved by making the leap. I will say this, that the leap in the dark idea is a dangerous half belief because it's half right. It's just not all right. I mean, there, God doesn't isn't pleased when we take risk just for the sake of taking risk. If we get on a motorcycle and wind it up to 100 miles an hour and go, woohoo, I believe God is going to get me there in a hurry. God's not tickled or honored. That's not saving faith. He says, no, that's righteous. You know, no, that's foolish. He doesn't favor anymore somebody that's taking crazy risks like that than he does the person that's making sure everybody's buckled up. I do believe, you know, we, we like to say, you know, we spell faith R-I-S-K. And I think that there is an element to that that is absolutely true. But it's not just taking risks for the sake of taking risks. I think often people will get the wrong idea about taking risk and actually put themselves in a calamitous spot and then blame it on God and go, ugh, get so discouraged. I'm here to tell you that that's not how this works. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the underlying substance. That substance word is hypostasis in the Greek. Now, faith is the other underlying substance toward which hope is directed, the conviction of things not seen. So, pistis is the underlying substance toward which hope is directed, the conviction of things not seen. By means of pistis or faith, Remember, we translated that as faithfulness. By means of loyalty, the true people of God are willing to act decisively in the visible world, not for reasons that are immediately apparent, but because an unseen yet even more genuine underlying substance, that's the hypostasis. Hypostasis is God's reality. Compels the action. 
This willingness to act on the deeper, truer, but nonetheless hidden reality, that's faith. So in other words, when we talk about His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as in heaven, when we are engaged with the Lord, faith, the substance of faith, is actually something that's going on in heaven that we bring here. It's not taking risks for the sake of taking risks. It's that I have been in communication and in communion with the Lord and I am in obeying and following the Lord and I'm seeing things in heaven that don't exist out here. It's like, uh, you guys, we were in here praying and praying and praying and uh, Lord, what's, what's this wall? And he said, it's religious spirits and we're getting blasted in the Holy Spirit. There are several of the leaders here and, you know, just having this amazing time in God and I get this vision as clear as day of me throwing rubber ducks at y'all. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Jesus, that's career suicide. That's who's going to do that. That's and I, I had a, I had a vision of Theo, you know, not quite Theo, but just rubber chickens and stuff. And I thought, now that is absolutely crazy. But I knew because I have a history with God when he started doing this to me, when he shows me a vision like that, that he's actually inviting me into an act of obedience that I don't necessarily understand. So you got to know the first day when I got up here with a rubber duck, I was terrified at the idea of what people are going to think of me if I throw a rubber duck. But you see, that was something that was going on in heaven. And later, it was about two weeks before he gave me the understanding of why he's having me throw rubber ducks. Other than the general uh, warfare against religious spirits. Not calling any of you religious. I'm talking about something that gets in the room. Huh. But that is actual faith. It's actually taking the things that are in heaven and in a, through our communication with God, stepping out into that place. Does that make sense? Versus just taking risk and saying, well, God told me to do that. That's why when people ask me about this, because I'm addicted to it, I just... Love to get in God's presence and in prayer all the time and get right before the throne. And what's next? I mean, whatever you want, I'll do anything. Because it's so addicting to actually step into uh, things here on earth that are actually things that are going on in heaven that God has uh, invited us into. But when I talk about this, often people will ask, um, hey, look, I've got this big thing in life. I've you know, how do I know when to make the transition? What do I do? Whatever. And I tell them all the same thing. Has God given you a vision? Has God actually spoken to you? And that matters that you have had a track record and a history with God before you just say, God told me whatever. That's why it matters in the little things. If we're faithful in the little, he makes us ruler over much. See, in our relationship with God, he begins handing us over trust and he gives us assignments. And as we step into assignments, we get this confidence that, oh, I heard God. And this thing actually worked out beyond my wildest dreams, beyond my ability to believe that that would actually work out. But I was trusting God. You, you, are you are all able to track with me to see the difference between that and just taking risks and blaming it on God? It's like this track record of having heard his voice over and over and over again. And then have the momentum of actually following through with it. That is the life that God is calling us into. That is actually pistis. That is faithfulness and loyalty 
to the Lord that is the righteousness, that is what God calls righteous. That produces salvation. It's producing a transition in us from who we were into Christ's image. God's reality compels the action. This willingness to act on the deeper, truer, but nonetheless hidden reality, that is the faith. So talking about Noah and Abraham, think about Noah and building the boat. And Abraham that actually took Isaac up and held the knife over him at the command of the Lord. Both things that are completely risky and outside of the norm that our natural minds would, or even our natural motivation would be ready to do. Neither one of them was just launching out into the void, but rather each responded to God's command. They heard, they saw a vision, they heard from the Lord, and they obeyed his voice. They acted in response to the call of a promise-fulfilling God with whom they had experience already. Does that make sense? Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac by the God who had miraculously provided Isaac in the first place, a God who had proven himself to be trustworthy. So, true faith or true pistis is a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. True pistis or true faith is a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. Okay, for a third time, true faith is a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities, the things in heaven, are more certain than any apparent realities, the things on earth. If the call is genuine, we may indeed be bruised by the leap. Now we're getting to where Paul's saying that I may know him. And I may know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. If the call is genuine, we may indeed be bruised by the leap. Yet, if it is genuine and gathering the bruises from the hard landing, we can be certain that we will come to look more like the wounded son, which is the final goal of redeemed humanity. That is a quote from a book called Salvation uh, by Loyalty Alone, by the way. Allegiance. Did I say loyalty? Allegiance. Uh, by Bates. It's a good book. All right. Faith is not the opposite of works. <laughs> you would think by a very popular doctrine of this argument between faith and works, like they're pitted against each other, but that's just not right at all. Uh, in this particular Philippians 3, we see Paul talking about the things that actually were advantageous, the things that promoted him and propelled him and gave him life and uh, credit worthiness in life, uh, he actually considered them to be a great detriment. That loss, it means like a violent detrimental thing that it actually got in the way. His 
following of the law, because he was a Jew, his following of the law to earn his own righteousness, to have a state uh, of righteousness before God based on following a bunch of rules, uh, specifically the the law of Moses. Um, and how many of you know the law is good and right and true, Paul says, but it's this idea of being justified by having done all that, that following a, a list of rules, that's actually... For some of us, it's very hard, but for some people, they can, they can get that accomplished in their own strength. We're talking about something that takes a partnership with God, a surrendering and a submission to God. And so faith is not the opposite of works. Treating faith and good deeds as opposite and mutually exclusive paths to salvation actually distorts the gospel. And how many of you know there's a, a gospel that believes that if you uh, raise your hand, if, if you believe that Christ died for your sins, if you believe that he is uh, God, that he rose from the dead to forgive you of those sins, and you raise your hand and receive him into your heart, then you get to go to heaven when you die. And some of those realities are, are true, but that's an effect of the gospel, not the gospel itself. You know, I didn't know that I was going to go here, but salvation, as we have learned, the Greek word for salvation is sozo. And sozo means to be healed and to be delivered and to be set free and to become whole. So if we're talking about salvation by the righteousness of God, then that means that the righteousness of God actually brings us into a place where we are healed, set free, delivered, whole, that we have actually become one with Christ, that we have actually stepped into being a whole new type of human. Not just trying to be better at the old one, but actually stepping into the life that is to come, the life of God's future world coming ahead of time, right now, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Before we die. <laughs> Before we die. He didn't say that Christianity is not, and I've said this many times, and I love saying it because it's just so much fun, but Christianity is not about the afterlife. It's about life after the afterlife. <laughs> he promised us eternal life. That's the very life of God that is unto the age that is to come. There's a promised time, the messianic kingdom. <laughs> oh, Lord. Some people talk about a millennial kingdom. This is a side. Can everybody just bear with me for a minute about the millennial kingdom? I didn't think I was going here either. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, the millennial kingdom is a, is a funny thing because there's only uh, one place in the Bible that talks about the millennial kingdom, and it's Revelation chapter 20. And there's six verses there that use the word, you know, a thousand years, and they'll reign with Christ for a thousand years. And this is um, dangerous to actually come up with a belief system or a doctrine that teaches that a reality that is in one spot in the Bible. And there have been so much 
over the years, uh, discussion and disagreement over what part of the millennium that we fall in, the premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. If you've got to stick me in a category, call it amillennial. Because there's just not enough evidence. Nowhere in Jewish writing of, in antiquity is there ever talked about any thousand-year reign of the Messiah. Only in Revelation chapter 20. Nowhere else in the Bible does it talk about that. Although we take a lot of the kingdom verses and stab it into a thousand-year reign, but that's the only place it talks about a thousand-year reign. So let me just point this out. The people that are going to reign in Revelation 20, just using it on itself, the people that will reign with Christ for a thousand years are not a raptured church. It literally says those that are martyred and specifically those that had their heads cut off. Just It's the only place in the Bible where it mentions that. And according to its own self, it, the reign with a thousand years with Christ are for headless believers. <laughs> I don't mean that in a sarcastic way. I mean, literally, that's what it says. All right, sorry. Whoop, that was an aside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you've been around here long, you know that our eschatology is different than the popular modern church. Oh, my goodness. Yes, get me back on track, Lord. So. I was talking about not the opposite of works. New Testament faith, pistis, is most likely means faithfulness or fidelity or allegiance. Uh, then might not pistis in its very definition include concrete acts that are inseparable from allegiance. And you guys know, you know, we could bring up James and his faith without works is dead. All right. Faith is not an all good attitude or it's an all good. It's all good. You know, we, we like to quote that all things work together for good for those that love him and stop it right there. We just say all things work together for good for those who love God. But are called according to his purpose. See, there's this reality that when we are caught up in the call of God, when we're called up in the purpose of the kingdom of God, we can be assured that he's working all of that out towards the future uh, target that he has in mind. What he has said is going to happen is going to happen, yet he's not micromanaging the cosmos. Does he want terrible things to happen to you? No, he does not. But this world has not yet fully bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus. When they do, we can all rejoice. But in the meantime, we, bearing with others, get to resonate with his suffering and with his death. That's what Paul's talking about. Y'all following me there? That's the rattle under the hood that we got to deal with. We can't have a kind of a faith that's like, ah, oh, it's no big deal, it's all going to work out, and then just sit on our hands. That's not how it works. Maintaining a positive mindset or unfettered optimism in denial of your situation and feelings. That's the it's all good attitude. It wasn't supposed to be. It's not supposed to be like that. There's this thing about our relationship with God where we go through stuff and we pour ourselves out before the Lord while we're actually in the fellowship of his sufferings. 
that there's something about wanting to identify with that part of his walk, that in that there is the power of the cross, that is the righteousness of God unto salvation that is released in the earth when we actually bear with people like Jesus did on the cross in forgiveness and allowing others to be forgiven just like Jesus did, being conformed to his death. And that doesn't mean that we're a floor mat or we just roll over. It means that when we are on mission from God, we understand that, that called according to his purpose, when we're living that relationship out, living out his purposes, you're going to take some bumps and bruises. And it requires us too to be there exposed sometimes to say, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Does that make sense? True faith cannot be spontaneously generated by wishful thinking. Why? Because it's rooted in a concrete object toward which it's directed. So faith for the sake of faith is not faith. That's just wishful thinking. Faith has to be tethered and attached to an object who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is the person of Jesus. That's faith is that I'm actually oriented towards him and moving that direction. Real biblical faith is not a general positive mindset or a blind optimism, but is directed toward a defined object and in its trustworthiness of the object that sources and fixes faith's genuineness. So if we want to grow in faith, we should study and contemplate God's extraordinary reliability. Now, I believe in miracles, and I believe that we can speak things into existence, but I wonder how much of that we practice is almost like um, extracurricular activity. When we're trying to command something that is unreliable to be reliable, and it's just not going to happen. Am I making sense? Our faith, true faith, is actually grounded in the reliability of the object in which our faith is set on, and that is Christ. All right, y'all like, are we done with the knots? (laughs) Do we need another funny video? It's awful quiet in here. Not intellectual assent. How many of you guys know what Gnosticism is? couple. So Gnosticism, when you get into uh, 1 John and you hear a lot of the arguments of false doctrine, even in Paul's writings and specifically in 1 John, uh, that don't seem to make sense, uh, he's actually posing arguments against Gnostic teachers. And Gnosticism mixed itself with the church from the get-go. And um, Gnosticism, think... uh, Knights of the Templar, or um, what was that movie? Gnosticism has everything to do with discovering, being saved and being in, by enlightenment, by hidden and secret knowledge. Um, a lot of those secret societies um, are based on Gnostic thinking or Gnostic doctrine, that by having magic sayings and secret handshakes and, uh, you know, unlocking 
um, you know, artifacts or something like that, that we can actually step further into a relationship with God. But it's, it's the basis of knowledge of the more I know, the more that I elevate past all of this material world. So Gnostics taught that materialism, everything material, like your flesh, is just evil and it's condemned, it's, it's damned, it's all going to burn. Most of our theology about the earth imploding when Christ comes back has everything to do with Gnostic teaching. It has its roots in Gnostics, Gnosticism. And um, Augustine of Hippo was a Gnostic before he converted to Christianity, and he brought his Gnostic stuff into, and the church has been massively influenced by it, and that was around 400 AD. But Gnostics believed salvation was contingent on the acquisition of esoteric knowledge. It's not too hard to debunk this idea in the Bible. You can look at Mark's gospel when Jesus is confronting the demons and they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Were the demons right? So faith can't be just having the right information. It's not about intellectual assent. In Mark 3, they said, uh, you are the Son of God. So actually identified Christ rightly. So when we talk about faith that saves, if it's about confessing with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you know, Romans 10, 9, and 10. How many of you, like, when you first got saved, it was the Romans road, Romans 10, 9, and 10. You believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you'll be saved. That's all correct. It's just our understanding of what that means may be skewed. It has to be more than intellectual assent. And just knowing the right stuff. Knowing the right stuff doesn't save you. Although knowing the right stuff is not bad, we need to know the right stuff. It's just not the thing that God looks at and goes, now that's faith. I was talking to somebody earlier this week about that way in which we've preached the gospel forever that doesn't bring uh, comfort in every situation. This is a, a little bit sensitive, but I have permission to share And I was sharing some of this information with him. And I was like, how do you reconcile when the rich young ruler asked Christ, what must I do to enter eternal life? Do you all remember what he said to the rich young ruler? Well, he said, well, what's your understanding of the scripture, of the law? Love your father and mother. You know, he went through the list. All these things I've done for my youth. What more do I lack? Well, how does he know he lacks something? if he's waiting for the day when he gets to go to heaven. No, he understands that entering the kingdom of God has to do with the life of God. The life of the age to come actually impacting. He's looking at Christ. Christ is making limbs grow out and eyeballs popping. How do I get a hold of that life? The life to come. He believed the right stuff. And Jesus says to him, go sell everything you have and follow me. Take up your cross, he said, and follow me. I don't like songs that say, it was my cross you bore. He didn't bear your cross. He bore his cross. He said, you have to bear your own cross. How do we reconcile? That's the rattle under the hood. Wait a minute. That doesn't fit with my theology. (laughs) We're challenging that type of thinking. How do you reconcile that Christ would give someone that kind of instruction and then the thief on the cross? says, Lord, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. 
into your glory. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Which ones entered into life? Which way was the way into life? Selling everything and taking it across and following him? There was a cross involved in both. Hadn't thought of that. Jesus said in one of his parables that why do you call me evil when my heart is good if I have paid the person that bore the heat of the day the same amount as I paid the guy that in the last hour came? Did I not agree with you for that amount of money? Why am I evil? Why is that wrong? The point is loyalty to Christ, allegiance to him. It's not about us. We've made the gospel and salvation about us and absolving of our sins. That's an effect of salvation, but it's not actually the deal. The deal is that he is the righteous judge. He is the righteous one. He is the king who's seated on the throne and has all authority and all power. And he's called us into a, a lifestyle, into a life of being completely committed and loyal to him. That's different than just kumbaya and I'm feeling warm in here and say the right stuff. It's not that. Believing the right things about God is just not enough. James says this in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble or shudder. On the other side of the veil, they all know the truth. They're just not surrendered or submitted to him. That's the difference. I would like to propose that discipleship, remember we just did a, a series, the last series was the life of a disciple, that discipleship is actual salvation. You're like, ooh, that doesn't sound right. There's a, under the hood. Jesus didn't tell anybody to go and have big conferences. He didn't tell anybody to go and have crusades where we get decisions for Christ, where people raise their hand and say a prayer. Right? That's not what he told us to do. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'm just saying, we just have to shift our culture, and, and we're, we're, we're doing that, you know, but moving from here to there, it takes a, it takes a deeper look. By the way, this was the introductory to a, a four-week series and this feels a little heavy because I'm cracking down on some mindsets but the next three weeks we're actually going to take a really close look at who Jesus is who he really is it matters because if I'm asking you and if the word of God is asking you for allegiance to him and loyalty to him you know you might think we might want to take a deeper look at who we're actually following you know and not just Take it for granted that the shower seat's not going to fall apart. We actually want to make sure that who we're looking at is fastened tightly. So I want to go through some themes. Uh, what does it mean that he's called the son of man, the son of David? That's a big one. The lamb that was slain. And some of the other titles that he has. We're going to do that in the next three weeks. All right. We live Jesus' life in faithfulness and loyalty to the Father. That is the righteousness of God that leads to the salvation. Our having married Christ, our having embraced him through loyalty, 
that pistis, that giving loyalty to one is very much like uh, the image of people that get married. I am faithful to this woman and she is faithful to me. No one else has my heart but her and the Lord, obviously. That's a thing. Whew, that distracted me. <laughs> but because we are married to him, we actually, when we do that, we get to live in the faithfulness and loyalty that Jesus has to the Father. The indwelling looks like living his life as the son committed to the father. So this is, uh, we see this happen um, in modern Christianity a lot of times. We'll see someone that is on fire for God, that is actually uh, shaking the kingdom, shaking heaven and earth. Somebody that's walking in the power of the spirit and miracles are happening. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. And oftentimes we will begin to, really latch on to that figure and get enamored with that figure. But I'm trying to tell you what's actually going on with this person is that they have learned this reality to surrender and submit to the person of Christ. And when Christ has come inside of us, that there's this participating with the work of the Spirit and with what God is doing, that we're stepping into the life of Christ and He's taking over our life. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If one died, then we all died. The word says there's this idea that we're actually allowing by surrendering to him that he takes over our life. Right. What was it a couple weeks ago? I quoted that, you know, if, if we seek to save our life, we're going to lose it. But if we actually lose our life for his sake, we'll find it. Because Jesus is still here ruling and reigning, but he does it through suffering and through embracing a cross. And that's why Paul said, I want that righteousness. Now, I want you to understand that why was the cross his righteousness? Last time I spoke, I talked about the vindication of God and Jesus having actually been vindicated. His resurrection was not just a magic trick to show I'm God. And I think we think of the resurrection that way. No, the father actually in the courtroom of heaven said he is justified because he was right and true faithful witness. The things that he said and the things that he testified of the kingdom of God were right. You took him by lawless hands, Paul said, and crucified the Lord of glory. If you want to see the gospel being preached correctly, just read the book of Acts. Every time the, the apostles stand up and preach, it doesn't sound like the way we preach it today. As a matter of fact, when we read it, it sounds kind of foreign because we teach it differently. They were actually preaching the gospel. Jesus' righteousness was vindicated when he came into his glory and he actually now sits as the king of kings, ruling over the cosmos. And that's the part that we're like, ah, that's way over there. I mean, we know he's great, but wasn't he great already? I'm telling you, this is true. This is justification. He was justified because he was exonerated from the accusations and the complete humiliation and torture and punishment that the religious system and the world and all of its power unleashed on him. Now we get to step into the righteousness of God it's in Christ Jesus by being loyal to him. Why? Because that's how he became the one that, that 
by submitting himself to the Father, right? He didn't want to necessarily do any of that stuff of himself. He was so safe and so secure and so assured of his identity in the Father that he followed him loyally and faithfully, even unto death, the death of the cross. Am I making sense? So that when we are saved by faith, by faithfulness, by loyalty to him, it's the, the faith of God through righteousness. How does Paul say it? I got to back up. Back to our text. That I may gain Christ, I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but what righteousness? But that that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by loyalty. Do you see what I'm saying? Is there's this relationship that is called righteous, the righteous will live by faith, that is loyalty to the Father. That's the way that Jesus lived. He just did everything that he saw the Father doing, and he said what he heard the Father saying. Here, let's do it like this. Romans 1, 16 through 17. I'm almost done. I know y'all are like ready for lunch. Being transformed into his image is salvation. That's why Paul can say, by any means, if I can attain to the, to the resurrection. Because if he really believed that saying a prayer or having warm fuzzies in his heart or having the right theology saved him, then why would he be saying, I'm, I'm not there yet? Even after having given his whole life, he's in prison. He's coming down on his last year here. I'm not sure if he lived three months, six months after he wrote that. In Romans 1.16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that's not in the New King James. It's actually by faith for faith. It's like in and is are those words. By faith for faith. For, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk 2.4 is this eschatological promise about the coming reign of the Messiah. And Paul, I've modified that a little bit. Your version probably says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. But Paul, in his day, and Jesus, and all the apostles, actually read the Old Testament from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation that was done in Egypt. That's a lot of information. But in the Septuagint, it actually says, which Paul would have been quoting from, the just shall live by my faith. The just shall live by my faithfulness, by my loyalty. In other words, our justification is his justification. Our justification is his loyalty to the Father that we actually step into and are being transformed and changed into his image. There's, there's, there's this doctrine of imputation that when you said the little prayer and got the warm fuzzy, that all of a sudden God hits you and now you're the righteousness of Christ. I'm sorry, that's not how it works. 
You got introduced to Christ. You became one with him. You're married to him. And your loyalty as you follow him actually begins to transform you into his image. That is salvation. That's why he can say, I've not attained yet. I didn't get saved. We got to change our language. You stop saying so-and-so got saved. Or when I got saved, I remember even after I got saved, which I just said it wrong, I remember thinking, this feels weird. Something about this is the rattling under the hood. It's the guy going, would you look at that? There's a scratch there on your beautiful 78 that you think is so amazing. I knew there was something wrong with it. Guess what? That word faith in the, in the Hebrew is muna. It means firmness, fidelity, steadfastness, and steadiness. But the righteous one will live by my pistis, my faith, referring to God's own faithfulness rather than human faith in God or the faithfulness of the human agent. The righteous one will live by Pistis, because Jesus, who was both human and divine, gave Pistis. He acted in loyal obedience to God the Father in accomplishing the divine plan through the crucifixion. So in judging him, God declared Jesus to be what he clearly already was, the righteous one par excellence. And God proved the reality of Jesus' total innocence by raising him from the dead and setting him at his right hand So now he lives. For Paul, Habakkuk had announced this future reality. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live by pistis, by loyalty. That is, by his faithful loyalty to God. So to continue our original text, where Paul has stopped there with the attaining to... the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Verse 12 says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. This verse has been burning inside of me for 30 years. Ever since I met the Lord, I'm like, Lord, what is that? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus, right? Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget the stuff which is behind me, and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. We never graduate from being disciples. I think it's tough for some of us that have gone to Bible school or whatever, you know, and we think, well, I read the Bible. I studied it. I got Old Testament survey. I got all these accolades under my belt. Well, guess what? We have to keep doing it. Never ends. Our growth and our understanding of the word is something that will go on and on and on. And it's our role to continue to help teach and to learn for others. It's like the difference between staying fit and lean. The last couple of weeks I had to get back out in the shop. And boy, I can tell you from the, the pastor bod to... <laughs> full-blown working man. I'm like, whew, man, it's like need to stay fit and lean, right, Joe? Got to stay in the Word. You know, we have so much freedom here in this country, it's ridiculous. You know, when the Word says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, it's like all of the liberty that we have here 
I just don't think that we're taking advantage of it. It was actually for the purpose of propagating the gospel. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make anybody feel like I'm not doing a good job. We're just trying to clearly define what it is that we're about and what we're not about. And I I explained it like this to somebody else. You know, it's like our biblical worldview is like in a bucket. You know, we can only hold so much. And as a pastor, I get frustrated because I'm I'm pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. Well, you know, that's okay. Because sooner or later, if you've got a glass of tea and you're pouring coffee in there, if you pour enough coffee, the tea has been displaced by the coffee. And that's just what we need to do. We need to constantly be taking a deeper look. We need to flip it upside down, the shower chair, and go, well, no wonder this is wobbly. Bolts are loose. So if I could get the prayer team, let's all stand up. If I could get the prayer team to come up. I think the thing that prohibits us from going any deeper, especially when we see things that we can't reconcile, is that we're just afraid of pulling the Band-Aid off. And I feel like the Lord wants to heal us today of just the fear of the unknown. I think there is a there's an anointing there is a release of boldness in the room to actually step into the very life of God that he's got waiting for us to actually step into it's not just going to fling you off a cliff isn't that great news God like he knows where we're at he takes us right there and he begins to move us in that spirit and in that heart of loyalty and genuine trust to a place where we can grow in that loyalty and genuine trust. And every time we do that, he's like, now that's righteous. Because we're becoming what we're always meant to become. And that's the new creation. Part of everything becoming new. So, Father, we love you. Lord, I'm asking that you take us to another level of trust. Lord, I'm hoping that there's almost like a holy irritation with things that don't seem quite right, Lord. Would you help us to identify every scratch in the paint, Lord, every rattle under the hood? Lord, every place in our lives or we're in denial about things that don't quite compute or don't line up, Lord, I'm asking that you shine the light of your glory and your gospel. Jesus, we want to live lives that are wholly committed, wholly surrendered. Lord, I want to be like Paul. Not that I've already attained Lord, everything that we've learned in the past, Lord, we just count that as complete rubbish. The English translation of rubbish just means poop. Everything's garbage. 
Every, every advantage that we had, Lord, is completely out the window, Lord. We want to gain Christ. Jesus, that we may actually know you in the power of your resurrection, which is the justification for your having served the Father unto death and your glorification. You're having been called righteous. Lord, we want to know what it's like to actually embrace the fellowship of your sufferings and be conformed, Lord, to your death. So that by any means, God, we can actually attain to the resurrection of the dead, that we won't miss that day. Lord, that you transform us, that you actually literally turn us into carbon copies of you. Give us the courage, God, to believe like that. Give us courage, Lord, to actually look at the truth like that. The ability to see the cross as well as see the throne where you're seated. We just cry out that you're worthy, Lord Jesus. When we say that you're worthy, that we crown you. You are worthy of allegiance. God, we repent and we ask that you forgive us for everywhere where we have slacked or hidden in corners, Lord, where we could just do what we want to do. Lord, every time that you, through your Holy Spirit, whispered and said, hey, come here, try this out. And we said, nope, I'm afraid for whatever reason, we don't want to do that. Lord, forgive us for that. Holy Spirit, I'm asking that as the days go by, as we step into all that you're doing in the next month, that you help us to glorify Jesus. With our lives, with our mouths, with the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We just invite you into every corner. Do your work. Reveal everything that doesn't look like Jesus so that we can reject it. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.